Welcome to episode three of Poopoo Pointless! Pew! God, you're stealing my lands. Less awkward than last time. Thank you. You're welcome. I feel great. Today we are playing one phase of phase 10 to decide to decide who decides who goes first or second. That made sense. Like how you were saying less awkward than last time and that's how you started. <laughs> I'm not good at not being awkward. It's endearing and it's a bit of a superpower because it makes people underestimate you and then right. all of a sudden you're all up in that business. Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to fuck with people. You are in that house eating that cookies. <laughs> I eat your cookies. <laughs> Okay. So the non-dealer goes first, which is you. Ooh, shout out to Smashbird for introducing us to this game, by the way. Phase 10, great card game, highly recommended. Fantastic card game. How many updates do you have, by the way? Quite a few. First update, last episode, Todd said the Swedes equal Karen Andersons, and I completely skipped over that. I think due to the Karen takeover of the world right now, uh, wanted to clarify, he meant one of my favorite singers of all time, which is Karen Dresher Anderson. She's now Karen Dresher. I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. I didn't actually check. I should have done before that. Todd was not referring to a Karen of the stereotypical sense. He was referring to one of my favorite Swedish singers. Also, regarding the Malort, I know I kind of set the gauntlet that I was going to find some Malort. I found a local Seattle bar who does stock it, and he told me to stop being creepy because I was about to call them and ask if we could do a curbside pickup for a bottle of Malort. So I did my due duty. Due, <laughs> due, due duty. <laughs> due diligence. It's also pronounced um, Malort. Malort. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Greg's. Greg. Malort. Malort. Greg is awesome. Wendy's also awesome. Sorry, Wendy. <laughs> Ooh, this is a fun one. So it turns out Mi Madre, Peg McClure, astounding artist, very talented lady, is a listener of this particular podcast. And she pointed out last episode, I said, Aussies like Marmite. This is the beginning of a long tradition of me apologizing to people from around the world. <laughs> Because the Aussies don't like Marmite. The Aussies like Vegemite. The uh, British like Marmite. Cannot say Marmite and Vegemite are the same thing. They will get very mad about that if you do. Vegemite has a much stronger taste. And as my penance for offending the Australian people, I bought some. And it's here. Stop. You bought Vegemite. It's got B vitamins for vitality. Pinky's in. Pinky's in, boys. Dink it. Sink it. (laughs) God, I love that. <clears throat> My mouth feels bad. I apologize to the Australians. I love that taste. I'll gladly continue eating that. You're um. fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> What's your next one? Um, For those interested, hookworms are also frequently referred to as the American murderer, which Todd pointed out because I kept saying the American killer. If you wanted to Google it, they're also called the American murderer. Um, also, I did not Google last time how much the Rockefeller Foundation $1 million was. Inflation. Yes, from 1909 to 2020. In today's amount, the Rockefeller Foundation would have donated $28,815,004.40. Damn. Did you round up to 40 cents? Nope. That's exactly what it spit out. That was was a joke. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll keep doing this because it's your turn now. Thymol is a derivative. Oh, yeah. I asked about that afterwards. You did. It's a derivative of the oil of thyme. And it is pronounced thymol and thyme. Thyme is obviously an herb. It's got a pleasant odor, strong antiseptic properties. It is an essential oil. And anyone who has messed with essential oils should know that they should not take them straight. And if you wait for un moment, Fuck. I might have just owned Todd for the second week in a row. Dude. You can possibly come back from this. I take it all back. Smashbird curse you. Uh, phase 10 is the worst game ever invented. Go, go, go. 
the other group of people I have to apologize to this week. I think we should start calling this like apologies and acceptance. Todd's apologies and acceptance purgatory. <laughs> um, I said during the prohibition, the Jewish people took advantage of their religious exception to drink Manischewitz wine. Mm-hmm. Um, what I meant was kosher wine. Manischewitz is a brand name, sort of like Band Aids versus Bandage, Kleenex. Kleenex versus tissue. Right. They took advantage of traditional kosher Jewish wine. Mm-hmm. The most popular brand of kosher wine is made by a company called Manischewitz. Fun fact. Okay. Eat shit. <laughs> we'll see who eats shit. We both just ate fucking Vegemite, so... <laughs> God damn it, did you just do a 69 draw? I don't have any other way to work it into this episode, so I had to <laughs> engineer it into my first phase hand. Yes. I love it. Okay. Three sixes, three nines. Do you have another update? I also apologize to the people of Chicago for calling them chickens and chicacas <laughs> and Chicago bros. They're known as Chicagoans. You were right the first time. Yes! What you got, girl? Okay, there was something interesting that I wanted to say last time. Now I can only think of the herb. <laughs> last time. Yeah. <laughs> that I thought it was really interesting. In 1926, there was a study of Alabama school children um, in the Journal of Educational Psychology by W.G. Smilly, M.D., and C.R. Spencer, M.A. It's called Mental Retardation in School Children Infested with Hookworms. Mm. The quote from that was, In a case of heavy hookworm infestation, little interest is taken in surroundings. The child does not run and play with the other children. He is dull, apathetic, unable to concentrate. When is the impression that the child is living in another entirely separate world. Whoa. So I thought that was very interesting. Sounds harsh. Yeah. It didn't quite fit with the jive of the last episode, so I left that out. Fair enough. I would also like to now apologize to the Swedish oh people. <laughs> At the beginning of the episode, I bragged about how hard I tried to learn how to pronounce Swedish words, and I was so cocky about Ustad and mm-hmm. Mjurt and fucking Bronvin, and yet I called the type of liquor we were talking about the whole episode Basque. Okay. There's an umlaut over the A, but it's called Bisk. Not sure that warrants an apology. I'm sorry to the Swedish people. <laughs> okay. Ooh, I also apologize to the Swedish people for not mentioning the name of the king because it's amazing. Yes, I was wondering about this. The king of Sweden at the time, who invited George Broad over and uh, awarded him for uh, his preservation of Swedish culture in Chicago, was known as Gustav the Sixth. His full and proper Swedish name is Oscar Frederick Wilhelm Olaf Gustav Adolf. Wow. Love it. That is an impressively long name. And that's the end of my Swedish corrections corner. Okay. What do you got? What do you got? You asked, did anemia prevent puberty permanently? I looked it up on CDC and Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm. It looks like it delayed it. Mm. Um, CDC quote, when children are continuously infected by many worms, the loss of iron and protein can retard growth and mental development. Encyclopedia Britannica, in heavy infestations, delayed puberty and stunted growth, fatigue, dullness, and apathy occur. Okay. So it looks like it didn't completely prevent them from puberty. They weren't a kid forever. They weren't a kid forever. That's what it sounded like. They so may be like, they wow. may be they may be stunted forever in other ways, including height. Um, puberty hits later and doesn't work quite as well as the idea, right? Yeah. I do have one more update. I think you have one more as well. Go ahead. I didn't quite give Sam Meckling enough credit. I think I used one of his alert lines. Mm-hmm. But understand this is the guy who was so funny about how much he hate loved this liquor that he ended up being hired by the company. So he proposed a series of slogans from Alert during his reign as their brand ambassador. Mm-hmm. My favorite two of his were Muller, tonight's the night you fight your dad. <laughs> the not inaccurate. And the other one was Muller, how to unfriend somebody in person. <laughs> oh, Shout outs to Sam. He did well. Hit us up, Sam. We got a podcast, homie. Skip. Fuck. Uh, my last update is I realized that we kind of cut around the reason I randomly mentioned, like, they still run rampant uh, in 1942. And then I just randomly mentioned 1942, but I have no emphasis on why I mentioned 1942. They were still around then. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was a reason. Okay. 
There was a reason I specifically mentioned 1942. Oh. So in the fantastic article that I mentioned by Rachel Neuer, she quotes Margaret Humphreys, who is a professor of history of medicine at Duke University. Um, <laughs> not Duke, you Duke. Okay. Duke. And, in 1942, for example, Humphrey's grandfather arrived in East Tennessee to build a power plant and found the workers to be so weak from hookworm infection and malnutrition that they'd nearly fall over if they tried to push a wheelbarrow. Damn. Yeah. That's why I mentioned that. I got one card left in my hand. No, that's you. You go, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I do what I want. <laughs> You're not my real dad. I don't know if I can do this to your face. Oh, fuck my life. Okay. Eat. Shit. So you won. <laughs> That's cute. Okay, so uh, you should go first because it's your birthday. <laughs> Happy Tardy Deuce. Dirty Thirty Twos. All right, tell me a tale, you old bag. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> okay, really excited to tell you about this. I'm here to tell you about Franklin Delano Floyd. Frankie Floyd. Frankie Floyd sounds like a guy I would play poker with. Don't give him a cute nickname. He's horrible. Fuck. American Death Row Night, currently being held at Union Correctional Institution in Florida. I got really into reading about death row inmates when they started redoing uh, federal executions in the last month. Mm. So, deep dark hole, <laughs> death row inmates. He's arrested in 1994 in the kidnapping of his six-year-old son and later found guilty on November 22nd, 2002 of first-degree murder in a completely separate case. Okay. Um, he is also a person of interest in the 1990 hit and run. So, let's get into this guy. Who's this guy? Why is he doing so many killings? Why does he murder? Why does he kidnap? Who's this piece of shit? I actually don't know anything about this guy yet. (laughs) Good. Caveat to any of our listeners who are sensitive about murder, kidnapping, children, and the abuse of children, uh, maybe skip ahead to Todd's part. I don't actually know if Todd's is any more positive than mine. I think this is like a true crime birthday. Uh, Happy murder birthday. (laughs) Murder birthday! Born on June 17th, 1943 in Barnesville, Georgia to Thomas and Della Floyd. Uh, He's the youngest of five children. Shortly after Floyd's first birthday, his alcoholic father died of kidney and liver failure. Mom struggled to keep them as a family, uh, eventually had to give up her kids to an orphanage. Age three. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Five kids? Yup. Damn. Age three, 1946, he is put into Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Hatville. He was bullied for being feminine, which keep in mind, he came in here at three. So bullied for being a feminine three-year-old, which I'm not even sure what that looks like. What the fuck is a feminine three-year-old? I don't know. He was sodomized at age six with a broomstick. God damn it. By fellow kids in the orphanage. (sighs) Um, He was also harshly punished by the staff there. For example, he had his hand dipped into extremely hot water when he was a teenager for being caught masturbating. (sighs) Orphanages Um, in the time... I mean, this is 1946, so kind of recipe for a troubled individual. There are quite a few stories that start Um, like this. I know a couple. Not this one, but I know a couple. Child abuse, sexual child abuse, issues around sexuality. Um, 1959, age 16, he's put in the custody of his older sister, Dorothy, because he broke into a house to steal food because he obviously was hungry and they weren't providing much. He's finally kicked out of his sister's, traveled to Indianapolis to search for his mom, found out she'd become a prostitute. She lost her kids, uh, had yeah. to get him to the system, became a prostitute to make ends meet. Mom helped him forge legal documents to go to California to enlist in the army. He was discharged six months later when they realized he was underage. Could not find his mom again. Tried very hard. Turns out she actually died in 1968 and was buried in Chicago, Illinois. Home of my lord. Not the time. I'm yep. just sad now. Sorry, I know. <laughs> um, he became a drifter. It's pronounced Malert. Traveled to Philly, New York, Miami, Atlanta, New Orleans, and finally back to Los Angeles, California. Hey! Big Uh, city. Troubled childhood, right? Yeah, I would say so. A little bit. Life of crime started fucking hella early. I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. Fucked up kid, abused, not doing well. The 
abuse does not excuse the eventual crimes he committed. No, but it does kind of explain. But we can see very early where and when this was headed. Mm -hmm. So right after he was back in California, after getting kicked out of the army in 1959, so he's still 16, he broke into a Sears and attempted to open a gun case. The alarm obviously went off. Yeah. Police came and they shot him in the stomach. Ow. He shockingly survived. And he was placed in a youth institution, 1960 to 1961, so about a year or so. 61, he's in custody for violating his parole, has a psych test, he's returned to Hatfield, Georgia, and he actually lives extremely close to his old abusive orphanage home. Great. Seems like a good place for him to recover and so you know, he, figure he, out his problems. Yeah, totally, Just totally. the same goddamn block. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go, go back <laughs> to your abusive childhood home. You know, so he's 19 now. He's already been in prison. He's already gotten shot in the stomach. He's already been sodomized. This is um, not going well. No, not that this is leading up towards anything good. Age 19, June 1962 is when his first deplorable, disgusting crime happens. So he walks into a bowling alley and abducts a four-year-old. Not fun. And takes her to the nearby woods and sexually assaults her. Four? Homie, what? A physical examination showed she was sexually molested. There were semen stains and bites in and around her pelvic area. Mm. Um, 19? He's 19. So, July 31st, convicted of child molestation and sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do funny stuff in the middle of this. <laughs> we gotta lighten up somehow. Um, <laughs> Shit. We're gonna go through kind of like a series of things just to get through the somehow more interesting part of his life, which this is not. What? Yeah, I know. November 1st, 1962, sent into a hospital for psych testing. Four months later, he escaped, stole a car, bought a pistol on March 15th, robbed the citizens in Southern Bank for $6,810.28, captured the same day. Back in jail. July 12th, 1963. Sentence of 15 years for robbery and sent to a federal reformatory. Two months later, he tried to escape by hot-wiring a prison fire truck and he crashed through the fence near the rear gate. Him and the two other inmates he tried to flee with were captured. He pled guilty and added five years onto his sentence. God, I'm mad because that would be such a dope jailbreak if you weren't right? a child molester. If you That'd weren't a, a sick fucking piece of shit pedo, you hotwired a prison fire truck. That could be a cool story. That's super but you're a cool, piece of shit. except you're a fucking sack of shit. You're disgusting. God yeah. damn it. So, had a horrible time in prison. Everyone knew his charge. They knew that he was in there, not just for robbery, but mostly in there for the kidnapping and child molestation of a four-year-old. And he was beaten and raped a ton of times. I have two feelings on that. I know. I know. One, he kind of deserves it. And two, that's not going to help him Him. not be that guy. Yeah, because I think- It's just going to make him worse. At this point, I believe by my math, he's 20. God damn, dude. To the point where at a time, he actually climbed the roof of the prison and threatened to commit suicide. Um, he was able to be talked down. He was transferred. We're going to skip a few transfers because there's like five or six. He actually earned his GED because at one point he settled into a prison. He submitted to another prisoner and the articles literally use the word capital D daddy and submitted to him only, which kept him from being beaten. So he was focused on pleasing his prison partner and could get his GED and became interested in law. It's cool how uh, prison helps reform broken minds like that. Yeah, by molesting them. It's fucked up. But he got his GED. I mean, that's something. Mm -hmm. So, 1972, he is finally released from prison and sent to a halfway house. Oh, I'm glad he's back on the streets. (laughs) Right. January 27th, 1973, a week after leaving the halfway house, uh, he is 30 years old at this point. Okay. He approaches a woman at a gas station, uh, forces her into her car, and tries to grope and sexually molest her. As one does. A week after getting out of the halfway house. No shit. What the f- She managed to escape. Floyd's arrested. Luckily. Good. 
arrested for being a piece of shit. Yes. He had met a friend during one of his transitory phases, and he convinced that friend to bail him out. He did not show up for court. Yeah, no fucking shit. (laughs) So in June 11th, 1973, he officially has a warrant out for his arrest, which means we got a man on the run. Man on the run. Yeah, so this guy's a fugitive. God damn it. So now begins the crazier part of Floyd's story. This is the crazier part? I was setting up his psychological history and exactly where he came from. Son of a bitch. Okay. This goes down a deep, weird, dark hole that is kind of what fascinated me in the first place. I was trying to, like, climb my way up from the deep, weird, dark hole. No, we're not climbing up anything other than the ladder of drunkenness to forget that I ever studied this piece of shit human. Fuck. Happy birthday to me. (laughs) 1974. Floyd, under the alias, because remember, he is a man on the run. I'm going to ruin- I'm ruining this song. song. God damn it. I'm ruining it. He's under the alias Brendan Williams. He meets Sandy Chipman in North Carolina at a truck stop. Uh, she has four children. Suzanne, born in 1969. Oh, come on. I finally did it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should not be joking about that in oh, the middle yeah. of the story. You got me to like the middle of depression. I'm trying to lighten it up. Hole. It's really depressing. Can you sneak it in? I know. <laughs> not the only time I'll sneak it in. Anyways. Um, <laughs> I I'm, shouldn't I'm, joke I'm about kind of proud is, of you because that's when I least expected this it. This is horrendous. Uh, Suzanne, born 1969. She's five. Allison, 1971, three. Amy, 72, she's two. And Philip, 1974, he is currently one when Floyd meets Sandy Chipman. They dated for a month and got married. What? And then I don't. Well, we know plenty of young people who do this. No. no judgment. Some people fall in love quickly with no, the wrong like, people. I, I'm, 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 I'm the babies. There's so many babies. And then he somehow convinces Sandy to move to Texas with all four of her kids and marry him. Great. Let's see what happens next. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to this. So they're living in Dallas, Texas. Sandy gets sentenced to 30 days in jail for forging checks. Oh, that's kind of a cute crime. All right. Um, she leaves her four kids in the custody of Floyd while she's in jail for 30 days. <sighs> she gets out of jail and she returns home to an empty house and no sign of Floyd or her four kids. So eventually they found the two middle daughters, dropped off at a local church, operated a social services group. Oh, okay. They never found the oldest daughter or the youngest son. Uh, Floyd performs another disappearing act. Next time we see him, it is goddamn 1989. Uh, uh, Last time we saw him when he met Sandy was 1974. He disappears until 1989. Yeah, it was easier to do in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So at this point, he's going by Clarence Hughes. He's got a lot of aliases. And in 1989, at this point, he's married to his second wife, Tonya Dawn Hughes. Okay. And they have an infant son, Mm. Michael Hughes. They're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tony works as a dancer at a strip club, and a fellow dancer named Karen Parsley is encouraging her to leave Floyd because he is extremely controlling and extremely abusive. Sounds like it. At this point, Floyd had evidently joined the Fraternal Order of Police, even though he is not a cop. Evidently, that's a thing that you can do. You can just join the, the cop's frat without ever having served? Yes. So he's got cop buddies. And he threatens to track her down if she ever tries to leave him. April 1990... Tony decides to run away with a guy named Kevin Brown, who is a college student who she'd been having a, an affair with. Who's probably smarter and better to her. Almost guaranteed. Right before her 21st birthday, which is later in April, oh, no. when she decided to leave, she's found alive by three passerbys lying on the side of the highway with groceries scattered everywhere. She's taken to the hospital and she dies days later ah. in what is assumed to be a severe hit and run. When Floyd arrived at the hospital after Tony's death, he claimed to have been asleep at the Motel 6 that they were in after Tony left for groceries. Sure. So, at the time of her death, both her and Floyd were suspects in the 1989 disappearance 
of one of Tanya's former 18-year-old co-workers, Cheryl Ann Comesso. She was the co-worker of Tonya's at the Mons Venus Exotic Club in Tampa, Florida. Mons Venus is kind of a great name. A co-worker witnessed Floyd and Cheryl Ann in an argument around St. Patty's Day. Floyd was livid because he claimed that Cheryl Ann was responsible for his wife losing Medicaid coverage for their son, Michael. Okay. Cheryl Ann disappears the first week of April 1989. Her red Corvette, which she had saved up for, absolutely loved, is completely abandoned. Little red Corvette. I, was, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> and according to her family, she never would have abandoned her little red Corvette. Who the fuck would? Right. June 15th, 1989. So a couple months after she disappears, Floyd and Tanya flee Florida and they get married in New Orleans under the Hughes names. June 16th, the day later, their trailer in Tampa is set on fire and ruled to be an intentional arson. Fast forward back to 1990 when Tony was dying. Floyd is obviously the lead suspect in his wife's hit and run. Durr. No shit. He placed their two-year-old child, Michael, in foster care and he left the state. Because guess what he is? A man on the run constantly because he's a piece of shit. Yeah, I know. I know. It's depressing. Anyways, the foster parents said that Michael had limited muscle control, was nonverbal, and he experienced hysterical behavior frequently. They began the adoption process to adopt him in 1994, which is super sweet. Yeah. Six months after running, Floyd's arrested on a parole violation from the 1973 kidnapping charge. Oh, damn, that's called. Because he was still on the run. <laughs> I know. <laughs> from that charge. God damn it. So they finally catch him. That's um, why he changed his name so much and all that. E- exactly, because yeah. he's been on the run the entire time and yeah. somehow managed to get a second wife and a child while he was on the run from a kidnapping charge. So they arrest Floyd. Yeah. They run a DNA test on Michael to establish paternity. Yeah, which will show that Floyd's his dad. Floyd is not the father. <laughs> Jerry! Jerry! What? Ah! Yeah. After his jail release, okay. Floyd tries to regain custody of Michael, and he is obviously denied due to his... Uh, Everything? <laughs> his prison past, the fact that he's not actually biologically the child's father, and there's a good foster couple that wants to adopt him. Michael Anthony Hughes, the child. September 12th, 1994. He's in Choctaw, Oklahoma. Michael's in first grade. He's six. Floyd's been released. He walks into the school. Mm. And he forces the principal, James Davis, at gunpoint to lead him into Michael's classroom. Oh, fuck me. Kidnaps both of them. Uh, Wait, the principal too? He kidnaps the principal, forces the principal to drive his truck, and upon the first wooded area he finds, forces the principal to pull over. He then handcuffs the principal to a tree, and he leaves him there. Okay. So he proceeds with Michael into the distance. Principal's found... He's saved. He's okay. Good. Okay. Shit. Um, Floyd's arrested in Louisville two months later with no sign of the boy. Michael was last seen wearing a blue shirt with red sleeves, matching red and blue shorts, and black sneakers. Aw. He's never been seen since. Ah. So the investigation into the kidnapping of Michael, as well as the death of Tonya, start uncovering some bizarre mysteries. Well, there's been like 17 so far. So in 1995, a body's found by a landscaper off of I-275 in Florida. The remains are identified a year later, 1996, as the body of Cheryl Ann Comesso. Oh, that's old. We get a break in the Cheryl Ann Comesso case. Finally. Right. March 1995, a mechanic finds pictures in a large envelope stuffed between the bed and the top of a gas tank of a truck that he'd purchased at an auction. In this envelope are 97 photos, and there are shots of a woman who's been bound and severely beaten to death. Oh. 
they traced the truck back to Floyd, who'd stolen it in Oklahoma in 94 and abandoned it in Texas. Jesus, dude. They compared the photos and items found with Sherilyn's remains and the belongings that were found with her and her injuries, and they find them to be consistent. The pictures also contain images of furniture and other belongings identified distinctly as belonging to Floyd. Took him to court, wound up being tried and convicted, and sentenced to death on November 22nd, 2002. So, they continue the investigation into Michael's disappearance. Okay. Because he's still not found. He's still a kidnapping disappearance case. Pretty much a cold case at this point. We're at 2002. Well, the investigation into him makes them realize that most likely Tonya had also been kidnapped by Floyd as a child. What? Because among the photos, the evidence for Sherilyn yeah, yeah, in the envelope, yeah, yeah. they included quite a few sexually explicit photos of Tonya at various ages, starting at age five. Ah, uh, yeah. So they realized nope. that she'd been with him since age five, until Just she unnoticed? died before her 20th birthday. Uh, it's, um, fuck. 2013, the FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they conducted a cold case review and they reopened it. Yes. Good. Well, because she was never considered a kidnapped or missing child. Right. She was considered a hit-and-run potential murder victim. Uh-uh. Special Agent Scott Lobb and Special Agent Nate Furr, they go in to interview Floyd in jail. He is super unhelpful. Just... <laughs> a guy like that? You right. think he'd be like Mr. Yeah, Rogers? What? Just what? golly, let me explain to you how the <laughs> shit works. Let me, let me help you convict me of more <laughs> shit, even though I'm already on death row. And? Floyd, in the interview, admits to the kidnapping of his first wife kids. If you remember. Yeah. Uh, two found, two not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, youngest son was never found and oldest daughter was never found. Special Agent Lobb runs DNA and concludes that Tony Hughes, Floyd's wife. Yeah. Killed yeah. in a hit yeah. and run. Was raised as Floyd's daughter and then married to him in New Orleans. Was indeed the kidnapped five-year-old. Mm. Suzanne Marie Savakis. His, his first, first wife's wife. daughter. Jesus. It took 24 years after her death and 38 years after her kidnapping to finally learn her true identity. Ah. So, September 2014, Floyd admitted to the murder of Michael. Something. Closure. Yeah. Um, saying that after kidnapping him, they didn't have the same relationship. He ran out of patience and shot him twice in the back of the head. Not good. Hours after the kidnapping. Shit. He disposed of the body on I-35. The special agents conducted a couple-day search, yielded no results whatsoever. Agent Lobb, the veteran investigator, is quoted in a 2015 FBI website article on the cold cases saying, There's still a great deal we can learn from him. Maybe now that he's nearing the end of his life, he will want to make a full accounting to set the record straight about everything he's done. For now, though, Lobb is content. This has been one of the most fascinating cases I've ever worked. Franklin Floyd is currently 77 and still on death row. That is my quite depressing, interesting, weird story of a child abuse victim who grows up to be a piece of shit, who kidnaps a girl, raises him as his daughter, marries her, and Grims most her. likely murders her and their son. And another female for yelling at him. God damn, dude. Was your birthday wish to make me super uncomfortable and sad? <laughs> <laughs> All right, birthday girl. My liege. That was an awesome story. Really dark. Sorry. <laughs> you just wait, little lady. It's my turn to tell you. About the Grim Sleeper. <laughs> Sorry. i am just got this image of, like, the Grim Reaper, but in, like, full, like, onesie. And he's like, Arr, why'd you wake me up? He has, like, a little black teddy bear. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of torn apart, and he's kind of adorable, and he's like, I'm just sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a horrifying murderer. Oh! <laughs> okay, well, before I begin, I have to give a shout-out to Karen Kilgariff Ooh. and Georgia Hardstark of My Favorite Murder. And the fam! 
one of my favorite podcasts. They kick ass for turning me on to this guy at all. Um, they turned you on to him. No, they turned me on in general, but to yeah. this man. Can confirm. They introduced me. <laughs> <laughs> So, The Grim Sleeper is probably one of America's most prolific serial killers. What? He has 10 confirmed victims, but he is heavily suspected of well over 100. How am I... Okay. He was active for around 25 years, Mm -hmm. but unlike people like John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, he hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Most people don't know this story. Until just a few years ago, Mm -hmm. this is kind of mostly coming out recently. There are many reasons for that, and we're going to get into it. I'm bursted. Burst. Sweet, 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 (laughs) sweet. Our story starts in the 1980s in South Los Angeles. On May 5th, 1984, a 21-year-old woman called Laura Moore was standing at a bus stop waiting to catch her bus, and a guy pulled up in a blue pickup and talked her into getting in for a ride. He was saying, well, you're a young woman. It's dangerous out here. To her, you seemed nice and looked harmless, so she agreed and got in, started driving, and then he randomly turned to her, pulled out a gun, and shot her six times in the chest. What? With a pistol. Okay. So, she was able to fight him off. She was able to open the door and jump out of the moving car and stumble to a nearby house and get help. Bad bitch. Right? Laura Moore. Galora. She survived, but there was not a lot of police follow-up. They interviewed her. They didn't do much after that. And she wouldn't find out who her attacker was until literally decades later. Hmm. A little over a year later, August 10th, 1985, the body of 29-year-old Deborah Jackson was found in an alley in South LA. She'd been sexually assaulted and shot three times in the chest. Fuck me. There was basically no police investigation. Why? Uh, About a year later, on August 12th, 1986, the body of 35-year-old Henrietta Wright was also found dead from multiple gunshots to the chest, dumped under a mattress in an alley. There was still virtually no police investigation. Shortly afterwards, January 10th, 1987, the body of 23-year-old Barbara Ware was found shot and dumped on the side of the road under a pile of trash. There was a witness. There was an anonymous 911 caller who saw a vehicle pull over, dump her body out. He was smart enough to get the full license plate number and report it to the 911 operator. Hmm. Police showed up, and they did find the van. It was abandoned a few blocks away, but there was pretty much no investigation after that. (laughs) So frustrating. April 15th, 1987, the body of 26-year-old Bernita Sparks was found in a trash can, shot to death in the chest. November 1st, 1987, the body of 26-year-old Mary Lowe was found shot multiple times, again in the torso, dumped in an alleyway, covered in trash. How many fucking victims are there? Jesus Christ. January 30th, 1988, the body of 22-year-old Latrika Jefferson was found shot and dumped in an alley. September 11th, 1988, the body of 18-year-old Monique Alexander was found mm-hmm. shot to death and also dumped in an alley. So at this point, we have seven dead bodies in the same neighborhood with the same M.O., And, like, no police investigation. Basically none. Very minimal. And I think you kind of already know the reason why. Are they all... They were all black women. Okay. This was Southern Los Angeles in the mid-80s. God damn it. Okay. The unseen at this point. Right. This is at the height of the crack epidemic. This is a center of one of the highest crime rates in America. And at this point, impoverished, mostly black neighborhoods had basically been left to eat themselves. God fucking damn it. If something bad happened, you'd be lucky if the cop showed up at all. The LAPD basically gave no fucks. They recorded that they were all sex workers and or drug addicts. Was this any confirmed or are they just assuming? A few were. (laughs) Most of the victims were not sex workers and or drug addicts. For example, the first two victims were waitresses. But even if they were sex workers or drug addicts, they're still people. You're fucking right. 
And so at this point, we're talking about the less dead. You're familiar with the less dead. Extremely. Right. I could have been the less dead at a couple times in my life. These are black women who don't have a lot of money Mm -hmm. in a dangerous neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they are less dead. God, that's so fucking... Oh, that makes me so mad. And the LAPD quickly discards these cases. Close the investigation. And they mark them with the letters NHI. NHI means no humans involved. That's disgusting. They're just a dead cat. South Los Angeles 1980s LAPD. That is how it was. Okay. So here's the thing. You know me pretty well. I would like to think after. I'm not big on politically correct dialogue. I think it kind of dilutes the truth and it alienates people from each other because it makes people have hurdles to jump over to speak to each other. Mm -hmm. I'm big on using the term sex workers because the second you call them prostitutes, everybody's brain turns off and they're not people anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. They're objects. There's something you buy. If there is somebody who makes money off of sexual whatever, you know, even if they're just being sexually appealing or doing sexual acts, they are sex workers. They have a job. It's a construction worker. I'm a tech worker. You are a construction worker. They are sex workers. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Because it rehumanizes the dehumanized. The second you call them a prostitute, everyone turns their brain off. That's what the LAPD was doing to missing or dead black women at the time because there was so much crime in the neighborhood and they were so dead to it. If a dead black woman turned up, they said, oh, a prostitute marked it. No humans involved. And moved on. So I'm not one of those all cops are bad, all cops are evil people. But the institution of policing is fundamentally flawed. LA in the 70s, 80s, 90s is a really perfect example of exactly how bad it can get. Mm -hmm. There were several cops trying to raise awareness and try and do one thing or the other, but they were always shut down. You can try as much as you can in your job, but if you have a boss or a manager that's constantly like fucking you and giving you fucking blue balls, you can't do your goddamn job. They were never given enough time. It's a systemic issue. Racist systemic issue. Exactly. How many victims do we have at this point? One survivor and seven victims. But I don't want this to be entirely a story about a serial killer. First of all, because we've heard enough about serial killers. There are so many goddamn serial killers. And also, fuck this guy. He's not even an entertaining one. Preying on... <laughs> Would you qualify as an entertaining serial killer? Here, Ed Gein. Okay. This is not an Ed Gein. Okay. This well, isn't it's... even a John Wayne Gacy. This is certainly not... Don't bring up Bundy. A Richard Ramirez. Okay, oh, I fucking you. hate Bundy, too. Bundy was a cunt. Right. This was some guy who was going around with a gun, the most cowardly weapon, mm-hmm. and shooting the most vulnerable people. Tiny dig dude shooting people who will never be, like, investigated. Right. I will not celebrate this man. I don't really want this to be a story about him. I also don't really want it to be a story about ineffectual or corrupt policing because we all know it's absolutely correct, but this should be known by now. This is a story... About several badass women who took him down. Ah, this is the best birthday present ever. Oh my god, stop. Yes, yes, tell me everything. Now, Margaret Prescott was born in Barbados. Mm-hmm. She immigrated to America as a young woman in the 1960s, just in time for the civil rights movement. She immediately got very heavily involved. I might do a whole episode on her by herself. Mm. She's amazing. She was an activist with a lot of groups. But where she joins our story is in 1985. She moved to L.A. because she was working with a workers union to try to advance the rights of women. And immediately, based on who she was and where she lived, she became aware that there were a shitload of black women just kind of disappearing or being found dead and not investigated mm-hmm. and she was not happy about it because she saw exactly oh, how little the cops were doing about it and so she founded i love this because there are so many organizations that are fighting for one cause or another and their name's not literal margaret prescott founded the black coalition fighting back serial murderers bam 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 literal <laughs> yes it's a coalition of black people fighting serial killers Done. She ran a media campaign, literally walked around, passed out flyers. Mm. Uh, She held protests weekly in front of the police headquarters. They were called vigils. And they held up photographs of all the missing or dead women. Yes. 
and they yelled at the cops to do something. And she was just spreading the word around the neighborhood the cops were not talking about that there were a massive amount of black women being mm-hmm. murdered by at least one serial killer. Mm-hmm. And she was the first one to say, there's a serial killer in the neighborhood. She's like a civilian PI. She's actually researching this, getting into the case. Yes. She's making awareness of it. That's so cool. She's talking to the news. She's mm-hmm. interviewed by local papers. She appears on the TV and she's saying, there's a serial killer in the neighborhood. Fuck yeah. There are women going missing and the police aren't doing anything. The thing that struck me hardest about this whole thing is that the rallying cry for this movement was black women count. Oh, Jesus. Sounds oddly familiar, right? Margaret Prescott's Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murderers Mm -hmm. successfully pressured law enforcement to do something about it. So they convinced the LAPD and the local authorities of whatever kind to create a $35,000 reward to catch the serial killer. Fuck yeah. There was so much pressure against the LAPD that they had to launch an official investigation, finally. Mm-hmm. So they did. So the LAPD dubbed the killer the Southside Slayer. Um, so much better than the Grim Sleeper. <laughs> well, here's why. Okay. The problem is the list I gave you earlier, those seven dead women, those were only the victims that in later years were confirmed to be the victims of the serial killer later dubbed the Grim Sleeper. In fact, there were dozens more. Margaret Prescott was not protesting those seven women. She was protesting several dozen women, which happened to include those seven. Because there were black women going missing from South LA on a daily basis and Mm -hmm. being found dead and dumped and not investigated. This was not just those seven. And so the LAPD dubbed all of these victims of the Southside Slayer. And then the second they actually started looking into it, and looking at the MOs and the times and dates and locations, they realized they'd fucked up. They'd done fucked up. They realized that they have several serial killers on their hands. I have a list. Feed me this list. Because they had paid so little attention to all of these women going missing or being murdered. Oh, this is going to fuck me up. Okay. At that time, in South LA, undetected by the police, there were six active serial killers in the area at the same time. Fuck. Besides the man who later became known as the Grim Sleeper, there was Lewis Crane, Michael Hughes, Daniel Lee Siebert, Chester Turner, and Ivan Hill. Because they knew they could get away with it there. Jeez. Because they knew nobody would look. So, the LAPD starts going through these dozens of murders and sifting them apart and figuring out exactly how many killers they have. And most of the victims were strangled. It's the most common way for a sexually aggressive murder. I'm aware. There were only seven that were shot. And they were all shot in the chest with a 25 caliber handgun. <laughs> so they realize they have a serial shooter on their hands mm-hmm. who's targeting specifically black women. The ones shot with the 25 caliber handgun are dubbed the strawberry murders. I love strawberries. Why would you do that? Strawberries is slang for prostitutes who fuck for drugs. What? I, no, I... What? If you want a really quick perspective on exactly how much the cops respected these dead women, they were poor black women who are all drug addicted prostitutes. Clearly. So they're all strawberries. So these are the strawberry murders. That was the logic. I am... You you can see my face right now. Well, here's the other problem. (laughs) Just rile me up more. Oh, I'm just gonna make you more mad. Get, Get me really riled up. They don't release any of this information publicly. Why? God forbid somebody protect themselves. Uh, Well, first of all, if they release it publicly, they would be forced to do something about it. And second of all, if they release it publicly, it would be embarrassing that their department let it go on for years. God forbid you protect a vulnerable population. They keep it under wraps. 
fucking... And they let the women of the neighborhood walk the streets as usual unawares, even though they know there are several serial killers. They just don't say anything. Now, keep in mind, the entire time Margaret Prescott is tracking this personally, she's not getting any information from the police. The no, police, she's she's local PI. She's a... She's hitting the streets. She's passing out flyers. She's talking to the people actually out there. She and she's running around. She's collecting shit. her own goddamn information. She's not a journalist. She's not making money. She's one of us crazy nutters who's just, just like, like, I see this. This is fucked up. I uh, see this. I'm going to uncover it. Absolutely. So, on the evening of November 20th, 1988, a 30-year-old woman called Anitra Washington, who is a mother of two, was walking to her friend Linda Lewis's house because she was going to meet up with Linda and her husband and go to a party. Mm-hmm. It's right around dusk, so it's starting to get dark out, and a guy pulls over in what was later described as a tricked-out orange Ford Pinto with racing stripes. Douchey car. Mm-hmm. So, a short black man in his 30s gets out, dressed nicely, in a black polo and khakis, and offers her a ride. She initially declines, but he insists, and eventually he kind of charms her into taking the ride. He's very nice at first, and then as they drive, his demeanor changes, and he gets angrier and more incoherent and more sort of crazy, starts calling her by the wrong name, starts being very erratic, and she starts to get annoyed, and she turns to him and says, who do you think you're talking to? And he turns to her and shoots her in the chest. She blacks out, as one would when you're shot in the chest. Yes. And she wakes up to a camera flash. What? A Polaroid camera flash. Oh, okay. Some time has passed. He's taking her clothes off and he is sexually assaulting her and taking photos of her. Jesus fucking... Okay. She starts resisting. She starts trying to push him off of her. She starts fighting him. And he beats her mercilessly with the butt of his gun. And leaves her on the street, presumably to die. Oh my god. Well, so what this needle dick clown boy didn't expect was that Anitra Washington is a fucking survivor. She gets up, realizes she's badly hurt, looks around, figures out where she is, and she walks several blocks back to her friend Linda Lewis's place where she was originally walking to. Shot, beaten, and bleeding. Shot, beaten, bleeding profusely. She actually finds Linda's house. She walks up, knocks on the door. Linda Lewis and her husband are not home because they went to the party. Because she didn't show up. Oh, fuck my life. She collapsed right there on their porch. And hours later, around 1 a.m., Linda Lewis and her husband come home and they find her there and she's still alive. Oh, thank fuck. And they call 911 and they rush her to the hospital and she survives. Yes! <laughs> oh my god. She oh god. I like I've been holding my breath for like five oh fuck. She made it. She spent god. she spent several weeks in the hospital. She had a gunshot wound to the chest. Her heart was missed, but she had a fully collapsed lung. She was walking and operating on one lung. Oh my god. And major lacerations and wounds and broken bones Just to her the, face. The will and to shit. survive in that like god fuck. Mother it too. Don't fuck with moms. Do not fuck with moms. Do not fuck with moms and do not fuck with cats. Nature <laughs> Washington, here's to you. When she's healthy enough, she gives cops a full description of the car inside and out, make, model, color, every little shitty, stupid, douchey detail he did, and a full sketch of the suspect's face. Because she looked at his face and remembered it. Well, yeah. Also, the bullet pulled out of her lung during surgery is an exact match to the other eight women we mentioned previously. Yes! Fuck you, tiny dick piece of shit! <laughs> Science! All right. And bad so women. It's not. You're gonna wanna. Oh, no, don't. Don't in, ruin my birthday. In through the nose. So. <sighs> Depress me. The cops never tell her that they know that he is a serial killer. The cops 
don't let her know her case is part of a bigger case. To her face and in their paperwork, they insinuate that she's a sex worker and the police do not release to the public that they have a current case that they know is related to previous cases by one serial killer. And technically two survivors at this point. Yes. Fuck that shit. They don't tell either of the two women that there's any kind of serial murder case happening. They do pass out the police sketch to officers and put them on notice to look for an orange Ford Pinto. They don't release it to the media and they don't tell the public. Until an unknown police contact intentionally leaks this yes. to the local ABC station. Leak that shit! And so on February 16th, 1989, they televise, there's a serial killer on the loose and the cops keeping under wraps. Margaret Prescott hears this. Yes, Margaret! she is furious. Margaret! And she Margaret, does go. several well-documented, incredibly scathing interviews oh, about how long the LAPD's been keeping this under wraps. Oh, the women's her. names are released. She blows this whole thing up. Margaret! But here's the thing. After all the press attention, after this sort of general public knowledge, the shootings suddenly stop. I make you caught. Where, where, where? The trail goes cold. The LAPD strawberry murder squad never got anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just sort of gets forgotten about. Shocking. Until March 19th, 2002. 2002? 14 years later. The body of 15-year-old... No, oh, honey. Princess Berthamu is found... Naked, strangled, and beaten to death in an alleyway in Mm-mm. South Los Angeles. A year later, July 11th, 2003, 35-year-old Valerie McCorvey is found strangled to death and dumped in the street. January 1st, 2007, a few years later, 25-year-old Janisha Peters is found shot in the chest and dumped in the street in a garbage bag. God damn it. So here's the thing. 2007, by that point... We had DNA. So, there was saliva found on her body. Okay. And the salival DNA from Janisha Peters matches the previous two, Valerie McCorvey and Princess Berthamu. Mm-hmm. And because at this point they've gone through and tested the old cold cases too, it also matches Deborah Jackson, Henrietta Wright, Barbara Ware, Bernita Sparks, Mary Lowe, Latrika Jefferson, and Monique Anderson, all of the victims from the 80s. So, in 2007, the LAPD formed another task force. This time not called the Strawberry Murders or some... the fuck not. No, it was called like the 800 Squad because they met in Room 800 and they were a bit more serious about it. Like they Did actually... we feel that our jobs previously and we should probably do this better squad? Literally that. We let several dozen black women die with no investigation back in the day and now we're trying to atone for our sin squad? Yes. 800 great. Squad is a better ring. 800 also looks like Boo, so it's the Boo, you fucked up squad. <laughs> boo, you fucked up squad. <laughs> So, they formed New Task Force, and they really gave a shit, but they were still told to keep it secret Uh, by the administration because, oh my god, how embarrassing is that? An innocent person dying on the street in January 2007, and they had evidence and had not caught this killer they'd known about since 1984. They fucked up longer than we were alive. Yeah. So, in 2008, a journalist called Christine Pelisek totally breaks the story. Yes! In LA Weekly. Ooh. They are essentially LA's The Stranger here. Yeah. They are a local, kind of low budget, sort of funky, free paper. And Christine Pelzik is not a known journalist. 
But she kind of picks up where, like, two decades earlier, Margaret Prescott left off. She realizes the cops are covering this up, and the people on the street need to know there's an active serial killer. Christine Pelisek writes this amazing series of articles. She's the first one to expose this, and she follows it through to the end, and she's my main source for all of this. Oh, very cool. And she was writing for a free paper at the time. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, she's fucking killer, dude. And she is the one who first dubs him the Grim Sleeper. Because of his 14-year hiatus. Oh, that's so much less lame than I originally thought. Might not wear pajamas. Might also still wear pajamas. She dubbed him the Grim Sleeper, and the LAPD actually call him the Grim Sleeper because they picked it up from her. Mm-hmm. And the new task force, the 800 squad or whatever. Boo squad. Boo squad. <laughs> they take it seriously. They do goddamn good policing. Nice job, boo-boo. Despite the fact that they were told to cover it up, the cops working it actually are what we want cops to be. They did damn well, and they did exactly what should have been done in 1980 fucking four. Okay. They did what their predecessors should have. They did what their job title is. I will not argue with that. So they had this DNA match Mm -hmm. and they start chasing down potential ways to use this DNA. By this point, they had been keeping the DNA records of convicted felons in case they recommitted later and had to be Mm -hmm. proven guilty. And this task force had the DNA from the victims and they had this database, but it wasn't legal for them to use the database unless it was an exact match. And it wasn't. They found a familial DNA match. And this is the first case where familial DNA had been used in this way. Okay. Okay. I didn't know this. Well, here's the thing. At the time, familial DNA was very controversial. It's been used in later years. This is one of the first cases where it even came up. Yeah. That whole thing could be a story into itself. It was a whole legal process. It was crazy. I'd be fascinated. That's one of the parts I kind of left out because it was too involved. But they got approval. And the DNA from the 10 victims, it came back to a convicted felon known as Christopher Franklin. He'd been in and out of jail. He had a criminal history, but he was too young. He wasn't even born when, like, a lot of these happened. Mm-hmm. So they start looking around at family members. Now, Christopher Franklin's father was a guy called Lonnie Franklin Jr. Lonnie Franklin Jr. at the time was 57 years old, and he had lived at the time right in the middle of where all these murders happened. Mm-hmm. Lonnie Franklin Jr., guy from the neighborhood, personally knew several of the victims, and he worked as first a mechanic and then later a garbage man oh, in okay. that chunk of town. Who knows better how to dispose of a body than a fucking garbage man? So they look into this guy a little bit more. Turns out, pretty fucked up guy. So he was uh, in the army in the 70s, and he got a dishonorable discharge in 1974 because him and two other soldiers gang-raped a 17-year-old German girl called Ingrid while they were stationed in Stuttgart. During said group sexual assault, Lonnie Franklin took photos. What? He took Polaroid photographs of this girl. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So besides that, he had a long list of criminal charges, mostly pretty petty. He briefly went to jail for theft, assault, and battery in 1989, around the time of the original murder stopping. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was in jail. But not for that long, only for like a year or two. So the cops think they got a pretty good fucking case with this guy. Almost certainly this is the dude. But again, they've kept this familial DNA thing under wraps. Because familial DNA is not an exact we match. We can't prove it. We can't prove it. Exactly. You don't exact match. Unless you give us. And also, at that point, the idea of if you match a family member, we'll find you was very, very controversial. So they kept that all under wraps. So they had to find an exact match. And the way they did that is fucking amazing. And as I said, I don't want this to be just a story about bad cops. Mm-hmm. There is some awesome policing in here towards the end. Not that it makes up for it, but the cops get wind that Lonnie Franklin Jr. is going to be eating at a pizza place on a certain day. And so an undercover cop dresses up as a pizza waiter. <laughs> okay. 
and serves this miserable cunt his entire meal. Mm-hmm. And then when he's done, he collects his plate, his silverware, his cup, and his pizza crusts. So smart. Oh, God. This LA police officer is dressed up in a full, like, I Mario stripes. I love it. He's so upset. Thank he's you like, for your tip, sir. Walks away. Immediately like, gives... Why am I the rookie? Immediately gives it to the fucking lab guys. Yep. And they test all of it. It's all an exact match. Yes! <laughs> Fuck you, you piece of shit. Yes! They arrested him on July 7th, 2010. And they searched his home. <sighs> Inside his home, they found... <sighs> over 1,000 photos... What? And hundreds of hours of videotape of many, many, majority black women, usually nude and in various states of unconsciousness, including the photo of Anitra Washington that she remembers him taking. Fuck. Okay. Back in 1988. Also, closure? Like, that has fun. The LAPD goes through all of the photos, all the videos, and they identify 180 separate women going back over the last 30 years from the 80s to now. So he didn't take a break. We're not sure, but more than likely, he never took a break. Mm-hmm. He changed his MO and never got noticed. Because mm-hmm. the entire time, once again, who were his victims? Who's going to notice? Yeah. So police have released photos... There's 180 of them, which are the unknown ones. Mm -hmm. And they're still looking for the identity of almost all of them. And you can go look them up. And if you see anybody you know, please report it because there's there's a lot. Somebody would like closure. A lot of people would like closure. So Lonnie Franklin Jr. goes to trial. He's charged with 10 murders. Largely thanks to the pressure from the activists aforementioned. And honestly, at the end, good police work. Just Mm -hmm. too late. So, at his trial, over a dozen family and friends of his victims from the early 2000s and the 80s show up and testify against him. Anitra Washington, the survivor from 1988, is Mm -hmm. now 57 and married, and her name is Anitra Marget. And she comes to his trial and testifies against him to his face. Laura Moore, the very first woman we mentioned, the 21-year-old at the bus stop, is now 52 years old, and she shows up and testifies against him at the trial, points him out to the entire jury. Ingrid, the teenage girl from Germany, flies over. Stop. She's 59 years old by now. Oh, my God. And with the help of a translator, explains exactly what Lonnie Franklin Jr. did to her and points him out to the entire jury. Oh, my God. Okay. On May 5th. 2016, Lonnie Franklin Jr. is found guilty of all 10 counts of murder and sentenced to death. Wait, do we both do death row inmates? Shut the fuck up! (laughs) On March 28th, 2020, as in a handful of months ago. When we were beginning a pandemic. Lonnie Franklin died on death row. He didn't get executed. He just died. They said there was no signs of trauma, so it's not suicide, most likely a heart attack. But he died on death row. But who gives a shit? That's the point. I don't really give a fuck about Lonnie Franklin Jr. What I really want to focus on is the survivors, Anitra, Laura, and Ingrid, Mm -hmm. who all showed up 30 years apart, and they all personally sent him to jail to his face. And they also all outlived him and are still alive today. Yes. And I also want the story to be about Christine Pelisek, the writer for the LA Weekly. She was the one who first said, hey, the LAPD has known there's a serial killer on the loose for like 25 years, not said anything, and was the main source of all of this and wrote so many amazing articles. I encourage you to read all of them. She's still a successful journalist. She's currently a senior writer for People Magazine. In 2014, there was a movie made about her. Really? (laughs) Called The Grim Sleeper, focusing on her coverage of the case. Yeah. 
And in 2017, she published a really good book on the whole thing called The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. Mm. And also, this should be about Margaret Prescott. Fuck yes, it should. The activist from the 80s. The first person to bring any attention to any of these victims whatsoever. The first person to uncover anything about this and make a stink Mm -hmm. about it and actually raise awareness that there was an issue that nobody was caring about. She's still an activist, first of all. She's still around. She's still an activist. Badass dreads. Slaying it. (laughs) She has a radio show called Sojourner Truth about civil rights issues. I love it. I love it. Okay. In 2014, the story of her relationship with the Grim Sleeper murders and how she was involved was turned into a documentary called Tales of the Grim Sleeper, financed by HBO, which was nominated for an Academy Award. And that is the story of the Grim Sleeper and the bad bitches that took him down. Fuck the Grim Sleeper. Fuck yeah, bad bitches. (laughs) Holy shit. Also died this year. Well, yeah, he died uh, three months ago. Like the only thing good to happen in 2020. At some point, like his dumb little wiener heart gave out. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Ton of badass women bringing awareness to a case that no one else would pay attention to because there are some systemic issues in Los Angeles in the fucking 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s. Finally finding a serial killer, putting him away, and he fucking dies a decrepit piece of shit. Cool story, bro. Nice. Thanks. Weird fucking child abducting, stabby, rapey creeper getting away with it for years and finally getting caught even though his wife was his daughter. Cool story, bro. <laughs> Here's two shitty stories. They're not true blue. We will not repeat them. They are pieces of poo. <laughs> Roses are red. Violets are blue. Mm. This rhyme sucks. And so does this one. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs>